Welcome to PSQH the Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Kumar, Editor-in-Chief of PSQH. On this episode, I talk to Adam Sodowick, co-founder of Patient Discovery, about the benefits of patient-generated data. And now, on to the interview. I'm joined today by Adam Sodowick, co-founder of Patient Discovery. Uh, welcome to the show, Adam. Thanks, Jay. Uh, thanks for being here. Uh, and before we uh, start talking, I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about yourself and about Patient Discovery. Yeah, first off, it's a real pleasure to be here. Um, excited to be on your podcast. And let me tell you how my personal story um, of coming into patient discovery, um, and I'll tell you a little, about, a little bit about the company as well, what we're doing. When um, I was married in 1995, and um, we, my wife is British, we got married in London, and we spent our honeymoon in the States. And when we got to the States, um, he was quickly taken to the ER. And subsequently, over the course, really, of our honeymoon, she was uh, given about three months to live with oh, incredibly rare blood cancer. Yeah. And so we were kids. We were in our you know late 20s, um, just got married. And we were thrown into, at the time, there really wasn't a treatment. And uh, my brother's a cardiologist. And he got us, this is even pre-internet, right, onto a... Um, a clinical trial at Boston University School of Medicine, um, where they were doing experimental bone marrow transplants for these patients. She was 14th in the world and by far the youngest. It was amazing she got diagnosed because this disease called amyloidos amyloidosis affects mainly kind of folks in their 60s. Uh -huh. So we were very grateful that she got diagnosed, but she was also given three months to live. So she was, it was a very brutal procedure back in that, during that time, um, there was a risk that you would need multiple organ transplants. And um, we went through this journey together, right, with no real kind of experience, you know, nobody we knew really ever got sick. And then slowly but surely, she got better. And we got through it. We, um, we were able to build a family. We adopted three beautiful children um, from all over the world. And she now runs something called the Amyloidosis Research Consortium, which is a global research consortium working with the FDA to uh, do a lot of innovative policy around clinical trials, uh, specifically in her rare disease. This is all to say that um, we had so many concerns unmet needs, um, and I would even say gaps in care. You know, this was, a, this was a nine month procedure she went through, which we didn't really feel we had any way. And we were both, we both have grad school educations, any way to really talk about with our physicians. We felt embarrassed and shameful to bring certain things up. One of the examples was, you know, we wanted to start a family and we figured out, we realized only later, Jay, that we could have frozen her eggs, but we thought that that was such a low priority for the physicians who were trying to, uh, um, save her life mm -hmm. that um, we just didn't feel permission to bring it up. We had financial concerns because we were on the British healthcare system, and obviously it's very different here. We had huge concerns around transportation. So we had really, which I didn't know at the time, a lot of health-related social needs, social determinants of health, that even for folks like us who don't look you know, 
or don't have a typical profile, uh, we had um, a very, very difficult time communicating what would be both medical, but also really non-medical needs uh, with our care teams. So that had a huge impact on us. Um, I went on to build a, 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 a career in technology. My last company really was a compliance and adherence technology for mainly banking employees. And it was a very innovative technology, which was built during the uh, height of the banking crisis. But what it did was uh, patients would interact with it and and we would break down a lot of legal gobbledygook into understandable chunks and then um, patients would interact with it and get meaning out of it. But also we'd be able to manage uh, and identify people risk on the back end. So we did that. It was purchased by the New York Stock Exchange and we did more work there, scaled the company. But really healthcare and solving this problem that I'm about to describe was really just this itch that needed to be scratched. So myself and um, some of the team made the um, really crazy decision to move from technology and financial services to healthcare, <laughs> which is just, <laughs> as you know, incredibly complex. Mm. But with that, we brought all this innovation with us, with our naivete, right? And what we decided to do was, could we build a technology that understood patients, an understanding, a patient understanding technology. And that understanding would then be rolled up and communicated. All of that data that we would get from patients would be used for care teams to provide much more personalized care, but to really most importantly, shine a light on gaps in care. And then health providers and the, the entire healthcare system fill those gaps much more efficiently. So, Again, we were naive, so we called up like, you know, Boston University where my wife was treated and the Mayo Clinic and lots of other, lots of other um, prestigious uh, centers of excellence, UCSF Health and the like. And we, we went through clinical trials with its technology. We went through studies, uh, very rigorous studies. And what was emerging is, is that uh, patients who use our application called patient discovery with their caregivers at times from the comfort of their own home were sharing information that was highly sensitive around food insecurity, around uh, financial issues, around treatment challenges, around, um, around an array of issues, both through a structured kind of, you know, experience but also they would share and enter information in their own words. And our platform, while they were doing that, would dynamically uh, match them to support services. We also were real health literacy nerds. It would provide uh, each patient with very individualized education um, so they could, you know, we could understand what they know and what they don't know. And then again, roll up all of that data and information and knowledge gaps and care gaps into about one page for the care team before that patient even walked in for their appointments. And then we'd be able to put services in place for that patient. And, um, and of course, this information would be used to actually transform appointments between oncologists who are mainly in cancer um, and these patients that are managing really, really complex um, diseases. All of that data that we're capturing straight from the patient is in their own voice, it's from them. Uh, we standardize that. 
we then, in a very secure, very transparent fashion, not only standardize it, we anonymize it, and then we use that data to look for trends and benchmarks primarily across health equity issues across the entire system. Um, and we also use that data to help inform pharma to how to better design a clinical trial, how to price their drugs better, how real patients in the real world in Kansas City are, um, are what are the challenges they have on these drugs? What are the challenges getting to an infusion? What are their challenges when they have to choose between childcare and the pain and, and medicine, right? So mm -hmm. the data is used for the greater good. It's, it's very quantified. We also, I should say, we use it to also help inform policy on the Hill as well, because this is data straight from patients on how they're experiencing these tremendously expensive drugs and really what the challenges are and how we could pinpoint how to help solve those challenges in a very cost-efficient, time-efficient way. Um, so this patient-generated data, like, is, is it essentially kind of, are you, are you asking questions that aren't, or weren't previously being asked or solicited from patients? Well, they they, they have been, and, and, and it's happened, you know, in pockets around the country. Quite often it's a paper-based survey, mm -hmm. or, even, or even worse for the patient, Jay, it's done in the clinic. So if somebody's asking you about, say you, say patient A just got divorced and they're homeless now, or they're couch surfing right or they can't afford their medications anymore or for a period of time there's a lot of shame associated with a lot of that information so and there's typically a lot of anxiety when you're in uh in the physician's office you forget to break things up you feel embarrassed to bring up certain things in certain cases so patients being able to use this application from their home where that anxiety is removed and they can reflect on these things, we find that patients, we're building more trust with patients, which we measure, and we, uh, patients are, it's counterintuitive, but are quite often much more comfortable with a phone or a tablet and entering that sort of very personal information than they would be face-to-face. -face. Um, and what are some examples of, you know, you mentioned information gaps. What, could you give me some examples of, of information gaps that you've seen? Yeah. So gaps in care would be, you know, a good uh, one, which we're seeing more and more of, which is, you know, sadly is, um, and this really happened coming out of COVID is food insecurity. Now, 80% of health outcomes as you know, are really determined by what happens with by life outside of the clinic. And quite often providers have no idea of what's going on. And so when we see gaps like uh, a food issue or a gap in how I should be taking my medicines or understanding a certain therapy or a clinical trial, which is a knowledge gap, a different kind of gap, but being able to shine a light on a knowledge gap where the provider knows where that knowledge gap is before that patient even walks through the door to be able to address it is really highly powerful. So these could be knowledge gaps. They could be uh, social, social health gaps. And I mean like food insecurity or housing or transportation, but really subtle things. So when we ask about housing, we're not just saying, we're not just giving the provider a housing issue. It could be anything from, I have pest infestation. 
my roof is falling in, or I can no longer afford my rent, or I'm suddenly homeless. And given that we generally work in a lot of rural community oncology, both urban and rural community oncology settings, um, these issues are very prevalent and they are being, um, they're challenges that these practices and their patients face every day. Um, and, and are you actively out there now working with patients? Like, well, I guess, where, where are you at in yes. terms of, you know, rollout and that kind of stuff? Yeah, so we, um, we recently announced that we um, just inked a, a large strategic deal with Amerisource Bergen. Amerisource Bergen um, really covers about 65% of the community oncology uh, sector. Mm -hmm. um, and we are their preferred health equity technology solution. Um, there's not many of us out there, but through the um, success of a lot of the studies that we engaged with, which I mentioned earlier, they were able to see a solution that was much needed by their providers, particularly with staffing shortages and burnout. We really extend the reach of a lot of human beings in that practice because it's a technology solution. Um, and also there are codes within our application that those practices who are under a lot of financial stress can use for reimbursement um, as well. And then of course that data, which I mentioned, which is all anonymized and aggregated is really used, you know, and with the scale of Amerisource to help show best practices mm -hmm. um, amongst uh, both Amerisource uh, member uh, customers and non-Amerisource customers, but really we're doing a, we're doing a tremendous amount of work starting to do a tremendous amount of work with the Biden administration um, on looking at different value-based uh, care payment models. And um, and our data is, um, you know, potentially very uh, important for that in the oncology space. So we're in the middle of, of a national rollout with uh, Amerisource Bergen. Okay, excellent. Um, what kind of feedback have you gotten from providers in terms of how useful this information yeah. is? Well, I'll, I'll break it down this way is if you look at providers, right, they're really trained to provide the best care possible, right? Mm -hmm. They want to know their patients. So if you look at, you know, these a Norman Rockwell illustration of an old fashioned doctor <laughs> coming into the house, right? With the, the whole thing, right? Mm -hmm. With the medicine, back, right? And um, they, you know, that doctor would have known these families, right? right? They would have known what their living conditions were, what uh, they just would have had a much different relationship with these patients. Um, obviously, the system has changed a lot and the pressures are much higher, right? They're, that time just isn't available. So we're in many ways doing that. So for the physicians, we had a very, very warm reception. Um, because we're, we, but we also needed to work with them for about four years in the workflow to make sure every piece of what we did worked. So for example, we roll up data, um, in a way that a provider, we did some, you know, uh, time studies of this, um, you know, provider takes about two to three minutes to take our information in. Now a care coordinator could take more time because they're looking at support services and referrals, but for a physician, it gets to know this patient. So if you're 
if, if your physician understands you and you're listened to and under hood, understood before you walk into that appointment, then um, it's better for the provider because they have more knowledge and that they could, you know, we just heard from uh, UCSF Health yesterday that in using patient discovery, they, they took a patient, they actually used our information and designed a completely new care plan, moving a patient from one therapy um, to another. And they were both very intensive therapies, um, but this was based on a lot of the non-clinical information that the patient was providing um, through our application. So the providers, it's a real use for the providers. They see it directly in their EHR. So it's, it was a very warm reception. Working out the workflow took many years, as you can imagine. Yeah. And the patient's reception was typically very high, very high NPS scores and user satisfaction. But the reason is it's human nature to want to be listened to, understood, right. and supported. And that's our promise to the patients. And is it just a matter of, you know, system, the health system is just so overloaded right now. And there's such, you know, sort of that constant churn that it's easy to kind of overlook yeah. a lot of these things. Well, think about it. You probably have, even with an oncologist, you know, I'm talking on averages here and different practices are different, but call it 12 to 15 minutes, maybe. Mm -hmm. Right. And typically a lot of that information is dominated by clinical chart information. Right. Yeah. And you, some patients are great and they write everything down and they remember it, but it's usually paper-based and they remember their questions. But typically a lot of patients, I speak from experience, we would have a lot of questions. We'd even write them down, but we'd really freeze in those appointments because there was a lot of information coming in and whatnot. And um, <clears throat> so there's a ton of time pressure. And I think that's on both sides of the equation, patient and provider. So if a provider's taking in our information prior to the appointment, it really helps focus that appointment in a very effective and efficient way that um, typically would be hard because it would take maybe the patient five or six minutes to explain a lot of the stuff that was going on in their lives if they even got to it, which would take up half the appointment. Yeah. Uh, I know, and I know you mentioned you uh, anonymized the data. Um, I was wondering if there are any con any issues with privacy yeah. concerns. Yeah, so we're HITRUST certified, and so we have the gold standard in terms of security, which is very important. But patients don't know what that is, right? Mm -hmm. um, and they don't care. Uh, they care about security. Sorry, but they. Um, so our, you know, we made sure that our application is delivered through the EHR. Um, and it's white labeled, which is really important. But let me answer your question. When it comes to the data, um, what we tell patients is it's as, almost as though they're contributing to not only making their lives better, but patients, other patients' lives better. So think about it this way. Industry, and I'll talk about the pharmaceutical industry, has a very difficult time under even getting to patients, which they should, but really understanding what the needs are of patients. What are the unmet needs of highly diverse patient populations, right? And I'm talking about everything from PhD to no high school degree, right? Mm -hmm. Everything. And that patient voice, right? And is, we feel like it's a movement. It's a real mission because when you bring that patient voice to bear, it is one of the most powerful things to affect change possible. 
right? So we act for the greater good on behalf of the patient, and that is our handshake with them. So we have not had um, concerns from our patient population on privacy. The old, I can't see individual patient information. So Jay, if you were on our platform, I couldn't mm -hmm. see it was you, but at an aggregate level, I could see in the Northeast, there's patients that are spiking with uh, food insecurity mm -hmm. in a certain borough in New York. So it works like that. Okay. Um, so what are your hopes and goals for patient discovery as you sort of move forward into the next five to 10 years? Yeah, so, I mean, we are, we want to create an entirely new industry standard for quantifying health disparities in the United States. And not only identifying health disparities, how health disparities are, are identified, but also equally important, how they're addressed. And then sharing that information with practices across the country so they could deploy those best practices for themselves. And then eventually, when we get into the outer years, really looking at how providing really critical services that are essentially, quote unquote, non-medical services to patients, how we, um, <clears throat> how those impact outcomes. Uh, and will you sort of, sort of continue to focus on cancer care or were you kind of expanded into other areas? Yeah, so we started in cancer care. It's complex. You know, the patient needs are really complex. We wanted to start there and we will expand. Yeah, mm -hmm. exactly. So we see, thanks for reminding me actually. So <laughs> yes, we will expand into, um, um, into other areas in those years. So we have full coverage, yeah. Because the gaps are there everywhere, right? They totally are. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. We saw that with COVID. Yeah, I mean, what did you uh, what did you learn from the pandemic? Obviously, it was a you know uh, very different you know time for healthcare uh, and everything else. I suppose. great question. But yeah, what did you kind of well, take away from that? For us, interestingly, it helped make us because we were like a re we are a secure remote access tool to be a little technical, right? Mm -hmm. So once face-to-face -face visits just stopped practically mm -hmm. overnight, then our tool became really um, um, effective. And interestingly, uh, we first started seeing this where my wife was treated, you know, over 20, 20 27 years ago almost now, um, and um, in Boston. And we, you know, this tool was a way for patients to communicate with their physicians really also as a really huge compliment to telehealth visits. And it was also really effective before, you know, there was an awkward period when telehealth was just kind of, nobody knew what to do with it in the beginning right. really, or how to right. use it quite. So, so COVID really, I think we really came into our own as a company during COVID in many ways. Yeah. I mean, certainly, you know, it kind of, you know, I guess by virtue of you had no other choice, you know, you had to kind of use telehealth and these other, you know, ways to, to communicate with your physician. Otherwise, you know, you weren't going to be able to do it. So, Yeah, that's right. Um, that's right. Well, Adam, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. This is uh, 
thanks for uh, uh, telling me all about patient discovery. This has been great. Well, Jay, thanks for having thanks for having me. It was a real pleasure, and of course, I enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. That wraps up episode 85 of PSQH, the podcast. You can find more information about the show and listen to on-demand episodes at psqh.com. You can subscribe to the show wherever you get podcasts. Thanks again and stay safe.